And we're back. I'm Gervier Brom here with Chmot Carsandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into 1993's Jurassic Park and reflecting on all the major movie and TV news of the week. Folks, it's showtime. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. Jurassic Park. In our first segment, we're talking spoilers for a movie from 1993 in preparation for a movie that's coming out in 2022. If you want to skip around, we got timestamps in the description, and don't forget to subscribe. We're talking about 1993's Jurassic Park, obviously the new Jurassic Park continual sequel, whatever. I, I don't know what they are at this point. I'm, I'm kind of lost on mm -hmm. the new movies, but I want to talk about the old one because it's an absolute classic, maybe one of the most fundamental movies in film history. Yeah. Is that fair to say? 100%. Well, first of all, I feel like this is like one of those interesting films that's part of a franchise where you can be a big fan of the original and not give a shit about any of the sequels. And that's yeah. that's absolutely fine. I've kind of followed all the movies and I'm kind of looking forward to, I guess, the final one in this kind of new trilogy that kind of rebooted, kind of revitalized the whole franchise. But I feel like they've all just been mid. They've yeah. all been okay. Nothing has even come close to touching what Steven Spielberg did in 1993, uh, number one. Number two, when you're talking about Jurassic Park dropping in 1993, you want to talk about a monumental film that had a massive impact. I feel like there were two movies in particular in the early 90s that really revolutionized the trajectory of where Hollywood was going, especially with regards to special effects. Mm -hmm. The first was Terminator 2 yeah. in 1991, just seeing the T-1000 on screen, it just wowed audiences. And then Spielberg takes it up another level with Industrial Light and Magic with bringing dinosaurs back to life on screen. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it was actually Jurassic Park that made George Lucas say to himself, hey, finally special effects have got to a level where I can go back and I can actually finally finish what I started and do my my my, my prequels, episodes one, two, and three. Yeah. Um, let alone, obviously, the domino effect of so many of the movies everything. that had special effects moving Literally forward. Literally everything we watched today. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, monumental. I have to say, I'd love to know your kind of first experience watching Jurassic Park because I've, I've got a pretty interesting story, but I want to hear yours first. You know what? It's funny because I was going to ask you the exact same thing because I was like, I even was thinking, I was like, man, I wish I got to watch this movie as a kid in movie theaters. Right. I didn't get to do that. I just wish I got that experience because when you do watch a movie like this, it's completely different, right? It's. I remember just seeing it from the perspective of just what the hell is going on like i remember just like learning about dinosaurs and then seeing them on screen like that's a that's a weird thing right because right. like i don't think there's any other generation of kids that had that mm -hmm. when you were a kid in the 70s when you learned about dinosaurs you learned about dinosaurs you read it in a book and you're done i get to watch it in a fucking movie theater i get to watch it on my tv screen that's a pretty unique thing for a brand new generation to do mm -hmm. uh that's number one but number two i was just thinking like even just as far as CGI goes, they set the bar so high with this movie. And I was even thinking if it didn't work out to the degree that it did with uh, Spielberg at this time, I can't even imagine how hard it would have been and how much of an effect it would have had on filmmaking 
if it didn't work out this time. You know the cool thing about Jurassic Park as well? The special effects were obviously groundbreaking and you're yeah. right, massive gamble, but they did a very smart thing. They paired it with the best in the business when it comes to practical, practical. effects, man. Yeah. Stan Winston, the GOAT, I've got his book in my bookshelf right now. Like he has been working and you know, his legacy continues even you know after he's left us. His studio has created some of the most iconic creatures and monsters, whether it's dinosaurs, the predator, uh, working on Terminator. Like this guy and his team have just done some incredible work. And the cool thing about the filmmakers that Stan Winston and his studio have worked with, they've been able to make sure that the, the marriage between the practical effects and the special effects have been seamless. So sometimes you're like, hang on a second, is that a special effect? Yeah. Or is that a is that a real life, you know, practical effect? And in Jurassic Park, the guy made like literally a real life to scale Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. Imagine being on set where you see this kind of like animated, like real life T-Rex just roaming around the set. I, I don't know that's one thing, but like imagine just in a world though, if it didn't work out. Right? Like, let's say the CGI was just a little bit more trash and like it just didn't go over with audiences the same way. Right. I feel like, obviously, it's inevitable. At some point, technology would have caught up and that, that would have been fine in the long run. But in that moment, I feel like it probably would have just turned off audiences and turned off studios like crazy to the point where it would have been like a monumental effort to try that again. As far as what ifs go, as far as filmmaking, nailing Jurassic Park was such a huge moment and... Again, just film history going forward. I agree. And this is why, you know, when I talk about the early 90s, that's mm. where you have the goats like yeah. James Cameron and Steven Spielberg. Without those guys, yeah. any of the filmmakers, any of the directors perhaps don't know how to handle and how to shoot a movie knowing that there's so much that has to be produced on the back end. And you've got to trust a team like ILM to really deliver the goods and marry everything together in post-production. Even though uh, when you like when you're about to give the story about Jurassic Park when you first saw it, but even before that, I want to know what was your first experience with CGI? Wow. I think it was Terminator 2. Yeah. Yeah. Like legit CGI. Yeah. Cause I watched the abyss way after that. Yeah, it was Terminator 2. Yeah, what was your thought process as a kid being like, what the hell am I seeing right now? Honestly, I don't even, I think, comprehend that, oh my God, this is incredible special effects. I'm just like, so as a kid, just so wowed about the, the in Terminator 2, the villain. I'm just like, this is scary. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is super scary. How, like, I wasn't like questioning how this was possible. I was just so engrossed in the movie yeah, itself, yeah, yeah. which is obviously- That's like, the goal. That's the goal. You don't, want, you don't want the audience to be thinking about how, how did they do that? Or how did they do this? You're so engrossed in the movie that everything is just like seamless to you. Exactly. So yeah, give me a shot. What happened in oh, like, did man. you watch it in movie theaters by the way? Dude, I was a year too soon. Jurassic Park dropped a year too soon for me. My first experience in the cinema was the Santa Claus with Tim Allen in 1994. Oh. <laughs> And like, after that, I was good. Like after that, like I watched every major release, but man, I was a year too soon. So in fact, my first experience watching Jurassic Park was on a pirate VHS cassette tape that I bought from my local Sunday market oh in London. Gosh. And it wasn't the cleanest copy, but it was, and you know, the funny thing was back in those days, you would get like the, 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 the full on English copy, but then you would get the the indian dubbed version as well like yeah. in hindi and so like i remember there would be like two copies there one jurassic park dubbed in hindi and i'd play i'm like hang on a second, this isn't this isn't the right version <laughs> and then i actually got the the correct version into the vhs player but that was my first experience it's like watching an, an iconic movie at like jurassic park yeah. was on a pirate copy on a vhs how about that one think about that now and now you'd be like man if i'm not watching this in imax i'm not even going yeah <laughs> yeah i want like the best cinema the best screen opening night yeah as a kid you're just like but again, as a kid, 
it was still great. It was still a ride. It was still a thrill ride. It, I still had a good time watching it. At the end of the day, the biggest thing with Jurassic Park, and I think what this movie really gets over is the idea of spectacle, mm-hmm. right? And that's the biggest thing. That's what movies are all about. Every major studio, like I said, owes something Jurassic Park because of the idea of a spectacle that it created. Everybody these days, if they're making Godzilla versus Kong, if they're making an Avengers movie, if they're making a Batman movie, they're creating a spectacle on the level that this laid the foundation for. Speaking of spectacle, I did redeem myself. Yeah. In terms of the Jurassic Park experience, I ended up watching it as an adult in an outdoor theater in a forest. Mm, that's a move. When right the sun was setting. There we go, right there. And so that scene when the T-Rex first appears, literally the cinema screen is surrounded by trees. It's it was one it's one of my favorite cinema experiences period that's awesome because it was with a packed crowd it was outdoor summer theater summer cinema not one of those drive-ins everyone it was like an, an auditorium yeah but outdoors wow. and it was like one of those situations where it the the auditorium was kind of like used in the round for theater plays but they had converted it for a summer of movies and so watching jurassic park again surrounded by trees chef's kiss that's awesome it's it's a dinosaur You did. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. Can we just talk about, even before we get into like actors and all that kind of stuff, I just want to talk about Spielberg for a little yeah. bit. Because like, what did this movie mean to Spielberg in his filmography from like that point in where he was in his career? I think number one, you can argue this is a top five Spielberg movie. Number two, he left his mark on the industry moving forward. Like there's a handful of filmmakers that really have said, said to themselves and kind of you can look at you know historically who really moved the game forward who changed the game who leveled everything up and spielberg did that and here's the thing about spielberg he's been generational right he he made his mark in the 70s he made his mark in the 80s and then when you look at his run in the night like his run was like when is this guy going to deliver an l he just continuously and then he plays around in so many different genres but there's still that Spielberg's signature in all of his movies, whether he's making a horror or a, or an action adventure or a kids movie or a romantic movie or a biography or a historical movie or period piece, whatever the case may be. And Spielberg, man, like this guy, he's the goat. Yeah. He he. If you said to me, Steven Spielberg is the greatest director filmmaker of all time, I I'm can't not dispute mad it. At you. No. You think about it this way, and even like the fundamental idea of filmmaking. I want to think something and put it on the screen. It sounds like taken for granted when you really think about it now, but like the idea of what Steven Spielberg was able to do to be like, I want dinosaurs, I want to bring them back to life and I'll put them on screen and then figure out how to do that. That's the fundamental reason why we love movies. Mm-hmm. The, it's just, he's such a visionary to be able to take his thought process and be able to project it onto the screen and to do that in so many different genres the way he has and execute the way he has he's as good a director as anybody who's ever lived on the planet 100 uh but yeah let's get into the actual movie what what tell me what you love about jurassic park by the way well first of all it's one of the most rewatchable movies not just in spielberg's catalog but like in film history i've seen jurassic park a million times yeah i never get bored like i know the ride i'm about to get on yeah it's fun I feel like Jurassic Park has given me an experience beyond the movie. Like I've been to the thrill ride at Universal Studios. I've bought the merch. Let's talk about the merch quickly. So that's another kind of memory I have as a kid. I don't know if you did this, but when the movie dropped, I didn't see it in the in the theater right away. Like I said, I watched it on uh, on a pirate VHS copy, but I did buy a lot of merch. I had one of those Jurassic Park 
uh, binders. Yeah. And that was my binder for like school for like two or three years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I remember things like that. It's, it's such an indelible mark on my like memory of uh, being a kid. But yeah, I mean, watching the movie itself, it's just what's bad about it yeah you know it's like you can relate here's a funny thing about watching it at different stages of your life when you're a kid you put yourself in the position of the kids exactly you're as scared as those guys are you don't you don't think about the ethical aspects of what's going on with dinosaurs when you're a kid you can just enjoy it as a kid and when you're an adult though you get so much out of it as well yeah as an adult you're just like yo malcolm's my guy ian malcolm is my guy yes. i'm gonna go off on a tangent about ian malcolm <laughs> we'll go through a jeff goldblum thing as well yeah but you know what i love about this movie the fact that we're just living in this world for like an hour and a half almost before any fuckery actually happens right. no dinosaurs have escaped we're just living with these scientists exploring this world and it's just amazing. I could live in that. If that was the movie by itself and everything just worked out, I'm cool. I would have loved this movie anyways. The the three arcs of this movie, the setup. Yeah. And just, oh my God, now we're in danger. Oh my God, how are we going to get out of this? It's perfect. Yeah. It's the pacing of the movie is fantastic. There's no scene where I'm like, ah, they could have cut that out or they could have cut that out, right? Yeah, it's almost like the, the near perfect movie in many ways. Not only that, but like I, one thing I really love is that as much as like nowadays you can make an action movie and it's go, 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 CGI, mm-hmm. bam, bam, bam. Like it's just constant stimulation all the time. I really feel like there's like a lot of points in this movie where you just get to just chill. Yep. You get to just hang out and figure stuff out and gain that little bit of information as it happens. It's almost like you're just like like wading through the water until those massive fucking waves come down and crash on you halfway through the movie. Even like the the exposition they do give you, it's yeah. fun. How are they getting all of this dino DNA? Yeah. And like, even though they're trying to explain it and science the shit out of it, it's like, okay, yeah, I buy it. But that journey itself is fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, As far as like the, the two main characters, I, I've always had a question about Laura Dern obviously has like her pedigree in film, but like Sam Neill, how, how, what was your reception to these two as like the main characters? Absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is probably the most iconic role or roles that they are ever gonna have, ever did have. When you when you see them as actors, you're like, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park. I feel like with Goldblum, you can be like, Jurassic Park, the fly, you can pick up a couple of the different things. He's a bit more diverse when you think about you know, his iconic roles. This is my thing, okay? Uh-huh. I, I love the cast in this movie. Uh-huh. I really do feel like Sam Neill and Laura Dern, as they almost serve like they belong as characters in the movie, but they don't do it for me as like exciting characters. I don't walk away being like, holy shit, those are great characters. Right. Right. They're, they're almost like baseline. They, they serve a function of the story. Right. But it's weird because as they're the main characters of the movie, I care about them maybe the least out of every single main character in this movie. I understand exactly what you're saying, but I also feel like without those characters and the kind of path and trajectory they're on, we don't get Ian Malcolm. Absolutely, that's so what I mean. Fun- you, like you they're, need them. They're functional. They're yeah, very functional characters. Exactly. Exceptionally functional. But like even the kids. Sure. When I was a kid, I, I had no problem with them. As an adult, those kids piss me off. Like they really annoy me, man. <laughs> I don't have a problem with the kids because they're kids. You know what no, I mean? No, but kids. like turn the flashlight off. Turn the flashlight off. I'm, I'm like screaming at the screen these days. I don't mind that at all. I love that. I think they actually contribute so fucking well. I when I look at the adults, I'm like vanilla but sometimes vanilla works and it it fucking functions in the most amazing way Mm -hmm. i feel like maybe laura dern who was a lot younger than sam neill when they made this movie has done a pretty good job of navigating the waters in terms of her career moving forward post jurassic park yeah right sam neill 
I think it took a long time for him to kind of pop up in something where I'm like, oh, that's Sam Neill, but he's in a different kind of movie or a TV show. Laura Dern, man, this could have been one of those situations. You are pigeonholed as this character yeah. in this movie and it's so big that, yeah, we don't want to go anywhere near you on any other project. So yeah, credit yeah. to her for doing what she did. You know what? I, when I watch these movies, I really feel like both of those characters, they serve, again, the purpose that they do. But I never walk away thinking, man, I want to know what's going on with those right. characters going forward. Right. I don't give a fuck. Like, they are just there as part of the ride. Yeah. When we talk about, like, contributors to the story and contributors to the movie and really fucking make me feel like, wow, that guy's fucking awesome in this movie. We can talk about maybe the coolest, most suave scientist in all of film history. Mr. Steal Your Girl. Jeff Goldblum is E. Malcolm. Uh, see, the Tyrannosaur... Uh uh, doesn't have any set patterns or, or, or park schedules. The essence uh, of chaos. Um, I'm still not clear on chaos. Oh, oh, it, it, it it's, uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability in complex systems. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and then I go too fast. I, I go too fast. I did a flyby. No. Give, me, give me that the glass of water. I'll show. We're going to conduct an experiment. It should be still. The car's bouncing up and down. But that's okay. It's just an example. Now, put your hand... And maybe that's why he was brought back for the for the sequels yeah. in, in a major, major role. And the other two, not so much. Yeah, yeah. But, like, honestly, Jeff Goldblum here, charisma. Mm -hmm. I think as charismatic a character... Like, as, a, as far as, like, nerdy characters, like, I think he's as top tier as it gets. Oh yeah, I mean, right? like, who much cooler nerd exists in film? He's the man in black. He's got that you know leather jacket, got rocking. He's in his prime. Yeah, it wasn't until people st like nerds started getting like superhero like costumes that like they became like next level even cooler. But like as far as just straight up a guy, I think Ian Malcolm is among one of the coolest characters that's ever existed in film. I also want to know. I wonder if. Jeff Goldblum delivered the dialogue as it was written in the script. No way. Or if mean? he kind of like said, hey, you know what? Why don't we take it in this direction, that direction? That, I actually don't know. I don't know how much of what he says as his, as the character of Ian Malcolm is directly from the page of the script yeah. versus how much he improvised and just came up on the spot. You know what? At the end of the day, the, the crazy thing about Jeff Goldblum is no matter what you write for him, it just becomes his because his way of speaking is so unique. It's like mm. Christopher Walken, right? Like yeah. Christopher Walken, Jeff Goldblum. I don't know who else I would put in that category, but like there's certain actors that just if they speak, there's no way you could possibly modify that to the point where it would be like you wouldn't be like I, you have to recognize that that's the person who's saying it. Mm -hmm. And Jeff Goldblum is like one of those guys, even just on a side tangent, like even these days, he's just one of the freshest people who's ever existed. Right. Like that guy dresses amazingly. Yeah. He still looks great in 2022. It makes no sense. It's been 30 years almost. Mm -hmm. And he looks just as cool and and fresh today as he did in 1993 yeah and uh yeah when we talk about him like if we're being real there i think the two most interesting human characters are are him and uh wayne knight's character nedry for completely different reasons obviously right but if i was just watching a series about anybody in this entire movie it would be ian malcolm oh 100 i would want to follow that guy for the 10 years before the 10 years after i think that was like a missed opportunity like you could have you didn't have to really go into the sequels that you go into. I would have just been equally happy if I just followed the adventures of Ian Malcolm, just going around and telling people why they're wrong about everything. Like I was saying earlier on, it's why as an adult, you appreciate the Ian Malcolm character way more compared to when you were a kid. And 
30 years later, it's still one of the, his scenes. Yeah. His bits of dialogue are still one of the most quoted. Yeah. It's one of the most used gifts on social media directly from Jurassic Park. Like iconic as it gets. Yeah. And he's the voice of reason, which for me is like, He's telling them they're going to fail and he's telling them exactly why. And he breaks it down for them, not only on a scientific level, but on a philosophical level. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, like, I, I feel like... Uh people would have killed off the Ian Malcolm character if he was like in a movie these days mm-hmm. almost because he's like so he's too right you know what I mean like he's too right to the point where like you gotta like kill him off as a storytelling device just to be like oh shit shit to hit the fan this guy was just way too correct everything backfired we didn't even talk about how the fact that this movie is like a thriller in, in, in a way as mm-hmm. well but it's just that whole speech just bars yeah right and he even talks about how discovery is a violent penetrative act like I just I, I, the the writing on this movie is fantastic, incredible, and and just the way he's able to deliver so many times, even when he's explaining chaos and all this kind of stuff, it should be lost and just be like scientist gibberish, but it comes off as charismatic shit. I want to know more about because it's coming from such an amazing device of delivery. Plus, he's also got some of the best like just outright one-liners in the entire movie. Period. Like the camera pans out. That is one big pile of shit. Like yeah. it's such a simple bit of dialogue, yeah, but the man. way he delivers it and everything, the way it's shot, is just so funny. Yeah, and I, it, one person I feel like has their best. Like, it, it's crazy because I know you're not a big Seinfeld fan, but Wayne Knight is, is Nedry in this movie, but he's also uh, Newman in Seinfeld, and that's probably the most iconic thing he's ever done, and it's never going to change, and it lives in pop culture forever. Mm-hmm. But this. If he hadn't done Seinfeld, I think this would have carried him for the next like 30 years. Right. Because he's such a charismatic character. The way he dies, when I was a kid, that's the most iconic scene in the entire movie for me. Right. Him, his character dying with the with the dinosaur that just, boom, pops out the ears. Yep. That, for me, is like the most iconic image of me as a kid. I just remember that. It just stuck with me. And it's so funny to see him kind of deal with that situation. But as an adult, like watching him be such a piece of shit and be like... Just, just like just be like a scumbag the yeah. entire way and seeing how he kind of deals with that is it's just a really interesting character to watch but I like I said the second most interesting character maybe in the entire movie mm-hmm. if you yeah. ask me yeah I mean I think it's either him or John Hammond I mean I feel like Richard Attenborough who if you look at movie history this is like talking about being pigeonholed as that's that guy yeah he is John Hammond like to a T yeah um, let's get into some of the categories best character who did you got uh, it's easy. You and me are going to be the same page here. It's, it's easily Malcolm. He has the best lines of the movie, like I said, that are still being used as gifts on social media 30 years later. Enough said. Yeah, yeah. I think Ian Malcolm, obviously I went on a tangent with him, but like I just think Jeff Goldblum is so charismatic in this role and to the point where I actually think he's underutilized even as an actor today just because he's so charismatic and that hasn't left at all. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in like even like his Disney Plus show. 
He's just a very interesting person. Uh, and I'm glad that Marvel has like a little bit tapped into that. But man, you can go so much further and really push. I wish I wish Jeff Goldblum had way more avenues or just be more of a part of like major film franchises because I feel like he really is underutilized. Mm -hmm. As far as best scenes go, you can go really across the board. But where do you go with this one? I mean, take your pick. For me, I landed on when the T-Rex first makes its appearance because everything's building up to the T-Rex. When you're a kid, you think of dinosaurs. The apex dinosaur is the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. And it's, it's what the movie is essentially building up to. And that whole scene, the setup, you know, the, the electricity, you know, shuts off. The fence is now not going to contain the dinosaurs. The kids are freaking out. That flashlight's going off. Malcolm's stuck. You've got two... This raining is pouring. It's dark. It's nighttime. It's just so perfect yeah. of a scene. And also, this is the first time we actually see the T-Rex, both as a practical effect and as a special effect. That chase scene as well, where like Malcolm is sitting in the back with a busted leg looking at the T-Rex chasing him down. Oh my God. It's a beautiful scene, man. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. For me, I feel like uh, the honorable mention, and I think it has to be mentioned based on like what I was saying before, just the idea that even before shit hits the fan, we just get to live in this world. And I think the most incredible version of that is the welcome to Jurassic Park scene, right? Like just when you first sit there and you just get that spectacle of them just getting up. It's so iconic. And you get the idea of just being like, you are them in that moment, right? Like you're like, holy shit there's actual dinosaurs on the screen right now. And I, I think that's like lost a lot of ways, like mm -hmm. over time, because it's so iconic to the point where it's been seen over and over and over. My actual favorite scene is that scene I was mentioning before where uh, Ian Malcolm is just ripping them apart and telling them exactly why it's a stupid idea. Maybe the greatest I told you so in cinema history. <laughs> yeah. Banger of a scene. Uh, as far as star readings go, five being the best, zero being the worst, where do you end up with this one? 4.75, man. Like, I don't know why I'm stopping myself from giving this a five-star movie. I feel like five-star movies for me are going to be reserved for what I consider to be my favorite movies of all sure. time. Yeah. Uh, but this, really, this is a flawless movie. It's easily one of Spielberg's best. If I had to make a top five Spielberg um, list of movies, this is probably making that cut of top five. Yeah. And uh, like I said, 30 years later, still rewatchable. If it's on, if I'm channel flicking and it's on, I'm sticking around. Yeah, Whether yeah. it's at the beginning of the movie, halfway through, towards the end, I'm sticking around for awesome, it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's as good as it gets. It's one of the most rewatchable movies, period. I'm going with like a 4.25. Again, it's not anything that's wrong with the movie. It's hard to even argue that, but it's almost to the point where when you are scoring higher, when I'm thinking that way, I'm thinking of emotionality and that's the only thing that I don't know if it connects in the same way, in that way for me. But as far as practical effects, special effects, and even just, like I said, the biggest overall word I would walk away from this movie is spectacle, and that's the gift that Steven Spielberg gave to cinema through this movie. And so bang, that's Jurassic Park. I don't know how much more we can give it praise, but let's get into some of the news this week. Mm. Uh, gentlemen, first big thing is uh, there's some Marvel news that kind of came out that's been kind of quiet, but just really interesting. First, uh, Kevin Feige, apparently back in the day was in serious talks with Warner Bros to lead DC at one point when he basically wanted to escape the creative oversight of Ike Perlmutter. A little tidbit as well for Ike Perlmutter, back in the day he actually said that he didn't think that anyone would go watch a female starring superhero movie. Just if you want a little piece of him. That's funny. But uh, it's just interesting to see like what a fucking talk about Marvel's what if. Yeah, yeah. What if there was a what if of removing Kevin Feige from the equation? That's a legit 
you know, crossroads moment there, right? And in one way, it could have been the best thing that ever happened to Warner Brothers and the DC IP. And you never know. What if they fucked up Kevin Feige? What if they scarred Kevin Feige by mm. like just ruining his love for comic book movies and, yeah. and just filmmaking in general? That's the wonderful thing when you look back in hindsight at so many different projects and movies and franchises and how studios operate and work, who they hire, who they fired, who's managing this, who's managing that. And it's, it's funny how a million different ways things could have gone in terms of what we actually got and what we could have got in hindsight. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about like what Kevin Feige is still giving to Marvel these days. Like, and, and it's actually even part of the next stories I was going to talk about, but it's just, you can tell that his footprint is not only to create like a vision that he wants to see on screen, but he's give, letting so many other people's visions collaborate in that situation, but also he's just letting people at this point run free look at what sam raimi was able to do even if we don't absolutely love multiverse of madness he gave him carte blanche let him do whatever you want create a sam raimi movie within the mcu and even that is still like we're still exploring brand new territories in the mcu still mm -hmm. going forward man kevin feige absolute man uh next for deadpool 3 writers say that marvel studios has been very supportive in keeping the film r-rated deadpool is going to be deadpool how exciting is that for you? Oh, that's music to everyone's ears. Yeah. We just did not want to see Deadpool go from art like a PG-13. A part of me wants to watch like the opening scene just be like, wh wh however they get Deadpool into the MCU, I just want them to like almost like Mickey Mouse Deadpool for like 10 minutes until yeah. he like rips out of that world or something like that. Maybe even if he's like multiverse hopping or something like that, whatever it ends up being, I just want to see him just be completely... PG-13 PG as bleeps. fuck. <laughs> be as PG as you could possibly be. Let him like just kind of fuck around with that for a little bit because I feel like everyone kind of expects it anyways, like to a degree. Play with it at first. I think that's like a, like a missed opportunity if they don't do that. I'm sure Ryan Reynolds is going to have a lot of fun or already has had a lot of fun yeah. in, in that opening kind of 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. One thing we're going to be doing in a few weeks is uh, doing a whole entire review of the entire season of Stranger Things. I'm just waiting to finish that, and I'm also obviously waiting for part two to drop. According to some sources online, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige is in talks with Stranger Things creator uh, creators Matt and Ross Duffer to lead a Ghost Rider project. Okay. I'm very interested in that because collaborating those two, number one, that means that Ghost Rider is a very important project for them. Right, like I would imagine they don't come cheap. That's mm -hmm. the one thing. But on top of that, it feels like is this gonna be a situation where Ghost Rider isn't gonna exist in the normal timeline of the MCU? It feels like almost maybe this is one of those things where it's gonna be like a or set in a very specific time, because that's what it feels like the Duffer Brothers really accelerate at. Um, or excel at. I'm not sure about that, but what I do feel like is Kevin Feige is making a play to get a pair of the one of the hottest filmmakers around right now we know that stranger things season five has already been starting to film yeah. it's, it's gonna most of it's gonna be in post-production and that's, that's the finale that's the last season that's the last season it's gonna drop you know next summer and the the natural kind of next move for the duffer brothers is to move away from episodic television and into feature films so smart move by kevin feige to bring them into the fold in, in the mcu and which is we don't really know if ghost rider is going to be a film movie we're not, we're not 100 yeah sure so that's a good shout actually yeah. yeah if it's i mean that's a really good shout, actually. I mean, they could go in different ways right now. This is my thought process. I feel like, for some reason, Ghost Rider might be a fun exploration of the 90s. I don't know why, but I, I just see that as, like, an association for me. And, and also, like, I feel like the MCU, as much as we're getting, like, all this new stuff, new stuff, new stuff, I think it's almost like it would be fun to kind of jump into the 90s where they have explored stuff like Captain Marvel, where 
it just really hasn't been fleshed out a lot. If they were to like have a series that kind of just lives in that space, I feel like something like this might be a fun way to do that. Listen, if you're going to serve me up some nostalgia from the 80s and yeah. 90s, I'm going to eat that up all day long anyway. Yeah. I don't care what property it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you can figure out a way to either travel back in time or to set it in that particular time zone, sign me up. And man, talk about the visuals of Stranger... Well, obviously, we're going to get into it, but like this visuals of Stranger Things Season 4, just thinking about that from a Ghost Rider perspective... Holy shit! They're going to be able to execute something so special if they are able to come to do, like come to terms and figure this out. Mm-hmm. You lie. Why do you lie? I dump your ass. Next, Marvel Studios is reporting that they are looking for a big name director for Fantastic Four. One source even says that Kevin Feige doesn't want to oversee the entire shoot after not having to worry about that with Sam Raimi. So it's interesting, like I mentioned, it's just he now he's trying to, it looks like he's planting the seeds to like kind of step away a little bit. And because I imagine that the MCU is just getting so big, there's no way Kevin Feige can dip, dip into like every single project to the degree that he would want to. Number one, it's inevitable. Yeah. But they're just, they're just working on too many things, whether it's TV shows, whether it's movies. Kevin Feige can't replicate himself. You know what I mean? This yeah. isn't multiplicity, like where he's got seven versions of Kevin Feige, you know, quarterbacking or like, you know, GMing every single project. It's yeah. inevitable that's going to happen. And I feel like when he's getting involved with like big name directors that have got a good resume, like a Sam Raimi, I feel like you can be a little bit more trustworthy, especially with Sam Raimi, who already was playing in like the the comic book world with the Spider-Man movies. So there's a, a lot of trust there anyway, in terms of he knows kind of what he's doing there. And honestly, I think when it comes to any filmmaker jumping into any MCU project, the kind of blueprint, the tone is generally there. Without Kevin Feige having to like explain it to you, you kind of understand what Marvel Studios and Disney are looking for here. But doesn't it feel like that's changing? Like look at Multiverse of Madness. Mm. That does not feel like an MCU movie to me. Like it has obviously like the MCU tones and it still has like a a, most of that. But if anything has been a departure from that usual MCU style, especially after Endgame, Multiverse of Madness, especially if that's the direction that they're taking something like this, it feels like it might be something completely different now. I can't see them being completely different from the general MCU tone. And even with Multiverse of Madness, I don't think it was that much of a departure. Yes, Raimi, his fingerprints are all, all, all over it, which you'd expect. But I still kind of like felt like it was, oh, this is an MCU movie still. I still, I, I had definitely mixed feelings about that because it didn't feel like 100% like an Not 100%? For me, for I would sure. say it was like a 70-30 split. Yeah, something yeah, like that. definitely. Which is massive considering like what sure. they've been doing for the past 20 or oh, yeah, past yeah. like 10 years. 100%. Yeah. Next, we got Todd Phillips on a Joker sequel. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross a mentally ill owner with a society that abandons him and beats him like trash! Call the police, I'll tell you what you get! Call the police! Get what you fucking deserve! For me, this is, like, interesting mostly because I have no fucking clue what you do in a Joker sequel. Especially if it's going to be still just him and you're not touching Batman. I wonder if it's a situation where there's going to be like another superhero that's going to be there in place as as an anti-antagonist for Joker or something like that or Arthur Fleck. I mean, the thing with a Joker sequel is Joker's the villain now. Yeah. He's killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Like, who's he supposed to go up against? And I don't know what they're going to do. Like, it was like I was skeptical when like the original project of a Joker movie was initially planned. Yeah. And I was completely turned around by the movie experience. Yeah. It was fantastic, right? But then what do you do next? Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's such a touchy thing because now that they've really accomplished something and frankly, like they were dancing around like 
Taxi Driver and Martin Scorsese and all these kinds of things that they were really touching on. How like a lot of it felt like an homage and they got away with it because it was a single film and it didn't do anything else. But now when you do that as a sequel, how do you even touch that? Like mm. it's so delicate. I think this is going to be like a really interesting number one as a test for Joaquin Phoenix, Todd Phillips, like basically everybody because it's it, it they 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 really are basing a, like we've been talking about the news for months. How many times have we talked about DC wanting to do more like Joker? Plus yeah. Bruce yeah. Wayne is a kid. Yeah. In the Joker movie. Yeah. So you know are you going to fast forward 20 25 years and have him go against the Batman? And the thing is is if it's not the Batman, who is the 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 anti antagonist, an, antagonist yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 it's it's weird because it doesn't feel like a protagonist in that story yeah I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting one but that's mm-hmm. why it's fun like it's a, it's it's an interesting place to kind of take DC and that makes me want to go watch it for sure for, listen whatever Joaquin Phoenix is going to do right now with Todd Phillips with the Joker sequel given what they've already produced that's enough to say yo give me what you're going to give me and let's see what it's all about yeah and and you would hope that somebody like walking phoenix like that guy's got pretty fucking high barometer for quality so yeah. i have to imagine that if he's going to sign up for it it's going to be solid stuff 100 let's get into the next story uh this is kind of an interesting one because it's something that i've heard about for years but i was watching this interview uh, of one of those comedy roundtables that Ho- the hollywood reporter does and danny mcbride was talking about this one story where kanye west basically asked him to play him in a movie about Kanye West's right life. I know it's a fucking weird sentence, but like Kanye West was asking Danny McBride to play Kanye West in a Kanye West movie, if that makes any sense. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's fucking like, I want that movie so bad. Mm-hmm. I think that could be one of the funniest movies of all time. And if anybody can like get away with the ego and the character that is Kanye West, like that feels like a match made in heaven. And it's a bummer that didn't actually get made, but I hope there's still like a possibility that it could. Could you imagine like the person that the film is going to be made about? Well, the- actually, actually on a side uh, no, I remember even hearing about this a few years ago. And I remember the one thing that Kanye was talking about was that he wanted to make a series actually with a bunch of different actors playing him. So I think it's possible this would have just been like an episode in one of those series. Wow, that's kind of wild. Regardless, imagine someone, anyone famous, Kanye West, Tom Cruise, whatever, just says, hey, I want you to play me in my movie or in this TV show. Like, that's a pretty big cosign because they must have so much confidence in what you bring to the table that they're able to give a part of their life story and put it in your hands. But think about this. This is going to be like straight up comedy. This is Danny McBride straight up coming from Eastbound and Down. This is the end. Pineapple Express. Like seeing it from that perspective, man, what a home run concept that is. Mm. I just wish it was executed at some point. It goes back to what I was saying earlier on. There's so many what ifs in Hollywood in yeah. terms of what gets greenlit, what doesn't get greenlit, how projects change over time. It's fascinating, man. Yeah. And the last one I got is that uh, Frank Ocean is apparently preparing to make his feature directorial debut with A24. Obviously, A24, one of the hottest studios in the game right now. As far as independent films, they've been producing some of the most successful ones for the past couple of years. Frank Ocean is coming off not having released an album since 2016. His fans have been clamoring. I'm on the subreddits. I'm on, I'm a fan of Frank Ocean. Like I am part of that fan base. So for years and years for people to hear like, oh, He's about to drop an album. Oh, he had an album ready, but this this person's not letting him put it out. Or uh, he's had this ready or that ready. He's been doing a jewelry line. Like everything that could happen besides making an album, he's doing. And now he's stepping in to make a movie. 
which for me at least is like way more exciting as a Frank Ocean fan because like if anybody can do storytelling really really well as a musician that guy's fucking got it down to a T. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what are your thoughts? Like, I, I'm curious because I'm a hardcore Frank Ocean fan. I'm, right. I'm just curious to see where that comes to I you. I wouldn't say I'm a, a hardcore Frank Ocean fan. Like, there's definitely a few bangers on, on his catalog that I, I, I still listen to to this day. Pyramids is my probably one of my favorite, like, uh, Frank Ocean songs of all time. Yeah. But one thing about Frank Ocean is I know for a fact he's an artist, man. Yeah. He's a, he's a bona fide, legit artist. So anything that he wants to do, whether it's music whether it's jewelry, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, whatever, I know like this is coming from a very creative mind. Yeah. And I'm always willing to accept that. You pair that up with A24 all day long. Give me that. Bang Give on. me that. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, honestly, like I just can't see how Frank Ocean would miss on something like that. No. Especially if like a studio like this, imagine the studio that made everything everywhere all at once and the creator of Channel Orange and Blonde and Endless and nostalgia or like ultra that guy to be for working together like that sounds like a match made in heaven i'm so i'm gonna be in that theater day one if you're an indie filmmaker or someone that's kind of making uh, their way into the industry you must be looking at a24 right now it's like oh man i hope i can end up working for that studio one day because they're gonna allow you to flex man. yeah really really kind of flex your muscles creatively and yeah. get, do what you want to do as a filmmaker yeah as a studio like i really do check out everything they do these days mm-hmm. but yeah that's everything for the news let's get into our last section of the show let's get wrecked jamath what is your recommendation for this week so I just finished volume one of Stranger Things and it was an absolute banger. More to come on that when we review the entire season four. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Jurassic Park and I thought, okay, what's something that could be kind of re- relatable to both of those movies or TV shows and movie? And I ended up going with The Monster Squad from 1987. This is a fun 80s adventure with a splash of horror where a monster fan club made up of teenagers, encounters Count Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and Gilman. If you're a fan of Stranger Things, this is going to be right up your street. I legit feel like this is one of the biggest hidden gems of the 80s. There are so many people that I've encountered over the years where when I say, have you seen The Monster Squad? They have no idea what I'm talking about. They have no clue. I remember that I still I think somewhere around my house I have the Monster Squad VHS videotape because when you think of like kids and uh, kids kind of like action adventure kind of movies in the in the 80s you think of the Goonies you think of Lost Boys Monster Squad never gets mentioned I'm telling you it's a it's right up there it's an absolute banger I love it it's rewatchable and it's only an hour and 20 minutes think about that an hour and 20 minutes and it's it's a great movie I can't recommend it enough so that's my recommendation this week honestly that sounds like the best movie I really really want to watch that I've never actually heard of it it's great I definitely am going to go out of my way to watch that that sounds amazing uh for me I was same kind of thought process i was thinking what is a movie that like fits in that jurassic park kind of spectacle tone but at the same time feels like yeah like it's not given the same kind of credit that it should have been i'm going with pacific rim by guillermo del toro i feel like his fascination with monsters it's just turned into like this massive kaiju blockbuster that's just amazing to me right him exploring that genre with his signature style with such an amazing cast, you get like Idris Elba and Charles Hunnam uh, are fantastic. But on top of that, you get Charlie Day from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and he's such a fantastic contribution to this movie. It's just a great movie and a fantastic experience all around. I had a blast in the movie theater. I just remember thinking like, holy shit, this feels like a fun-ass ride 
I, I just remember having like a blast when I actually watched it there. And uh, when I think about big spectacles and like I said, being underappreciated, I always think about Pacific Rim. I feel like in a different timeline, if people weren't so gung-ho about like superheroes and all that kind of stuff, Pacific Rim would have been a much bigger pop cultural moment, right? And in our timeline, it'll just have to settle for being a cult classic and I'm okay right. with that. But uh, check it out, Pacific Rim. But yeah, gentlemen, that's the show. Where can anybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you've got 20, 30 seconds at the end of today's show, do us a favor, rate and review us. If you can do that, it really helps the show get found by new audiences on these platforms. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care.